Good morning, everyone. There you go. Now, as we uh, turn our uh, attention uh, to uh, the message for this morning out of Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12, we are we're at the end of our study of this beautiful book. We said that the word Ecclesiastes, when we began, uh, simply means the one who gathers the people of God because he has something to say to them. Really, God's got something to say to them through this uh, person uh, that gathers them. In fact, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, uh, births another word uh, in Greek that is ekklesia. Uh, and ekklesia is the first uh, title uh, given for the gathering of the church. Long before the word church was ever used, uh, it was called the gathering or the assembly. And that word is from the Greek word ekklesia, which is taken from this idea of Ecclesiastes. The author of the book, he calls himself a colette, which is often translated, at least in our uh, translation, as the preacher. And because he's the one gathering and he has uh, something he wants to say to them. So our text opens with these words. Uh, This is verses 9 and and 10, and then we're just going to walk through the passage together. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people of uh, knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Ecclesiastes is part of uh, the wisdom literature in the Bible. The Bible is often broken into sections, the law, uh, the prophets, and the writings. And this is part of the writings, but part of the writings is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And that's often called wisdom literature uh, because it's written in the form of Proverbs. And Proverbs are wise words. They're true, but often we confuse true words with promises. And, and so often Proverbs are taken as uh, promises for God from God, but that's not what they really are. They're true, um, uh, but they're not necessarily uh, guarantees. For instance, in Proverbs 22, one of the most famous Proverbs for parents, uh, train up your child in the way he should go. Uh, Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We know that even if we train our children uh, in the way that they should go, even if we're faithful to teach them the gospel, even if we're faithful to teach them uh, uh, God's word, that sometimes they depart from it. And it's not necessarily just the rank and file in the pew, but officers in the church, pastors, missionaries. So we, we know that the proverb isn't a guarantee that if you just do this formula, then this will happen. Well, even in Song of Solomon has a proverb, a very famous one that made it into music and probably the most famous verse in all of the Song of Solomon, I mean, in uh, Ecclesiastes. And that is, uh, for every, uh, everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that some things that really should have been done when you were a kid doesn't mean that it can't be done when you're an adult. It doesn't mean that you could be too old uh, for getting married, too old uh, to uh, establish a home, too, too, too young. That is, yes, generally speaking, there are seasons for everything, but that doesn't mean that they can only be in that season. 
So what does he say about Proverbs? Let me read verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. He's now going to compare these Proverbs that he's given in Ecclesiastes uh, to goads and nails. And you think, there's some metaphors for you. A goad is a, a long stick with a point on the end. And herders use them to move the flock. That is, sometimes the flock had their own ideas on where they wanted to go and the things that they wanted to eat, and often they weren't following the leader. And so he would break out his goad and uh, either uh, swat them or stick them, whatever gets their attention, to move them back. It's a way to think about it for the shepherd to protect his flock. Protect them from the dangers of predators, but also from themselves. Uh, We sheep aren't always the smartest creatures, are we? You know, I like that metaphor a little bit because aren't we like that? Don't we sometimes, don't I sometimes need to be goaded into the right thing? Because what? We think we know best. And it's true, we don't. But we're also, he's also comparing it to nails that are firmly fixed. Don't think of, don't think of the little uh, nails you can get at the hardware store that you can uh, nail boards together or nail into a wall and hang a picture. He doesn't mean that. It means more like a spike. The kinds of things that were driven into the hands of Jesus. They were used to hold up tents, particularly when it's windy so that they don't get blown away. So his, his point is, is that even as our world shifts, even as we shift, Proverbs bring us back home. Bring, they bring us back to true north. They give us the picture of where we are supposed to be, what true, fulfilled life, whole, flourishing life looks like. Think of it that way, that Proverbs are like your home base. They're your true north. But listen... One of the reasons he gives us these Proverbs is because there are so many competing voices out there for us to hear. That's why in verse 12 he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study, there is weariness of the flesh. So he says, there's plenty of books out there, there's plenty of voices. That would be the ancient way to say, you know, I often look at, my library because it's in my office and I think, you know, it's not going to be long before nobody comes and visits those books because everything can be so digitally. So don't, don't think of hard copy simply as the only voice uh, that we hear that speaks to our hearts. But it's the one that he's drawing out uh, for us. And, and he's saying that the Bible's not anti-intellectual. The Christianity is not against reading and knowing these deep things. It's just that we need one uh, message that we listen to more than any other. We need one that masters us. There are si- over 16 million books in the Library of Congress today. 16 million books. And we can master many of them. But we are only to be mastered by one. Only Jesus has the words of life. 
Ecclesiastes can be boiled down to these two big thoughts. Man's search for answers about life. And then secondly, God's final answer, God's answer to our quest. And we know the writer of Ecclesiastes, whoever that might be, and many believe it was Solomon or somebody like Solomon, uh, that he's been with all of his resources searching the answer to that question. Why am I here? What's the meaning of it all? Is there a purpose for me? And then at the very end, we'll look and see God's answer to that question. So what's the end of the matter? See, that's what he He says for us in 13, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. What's the preacher searching for? I said he's searching for meaning and purpose in this life. The search requires us to go back to when we were beginning. It's a lot like uh, 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 not having the manual and then finding the manual to something If you want to know what its purpose, you have to look at what the creator intended for it to be about and what it was supposed to do. And so if you go back to Genesis, there are a couple of verses in there that are our owner's manual. They are the place that we go to define the purpose of man, the meaning of life. One's in verse 27 and the other one's in verse 28 of the very first chapter. After God has created everything, he creates man and he says this. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Remember that the original hearers of Genesis are the former uh, Egyptian slaves. They're Jewish, uh, uh, but they were slaves in Egypt. They're now in the wilderness. And here's Moses explaining to them how they got there, their own history. And where they're going, where he's taking them to find this wholeness that is being held out for all of mankind, the promised land. And so he's explaining that. In order to explain that, he takes them all the way back to Genesis and says, okay, here's why we exist. We exist because we are supposed to reflect the image of God. We're reflectors. A way to think of it uh, uh, that some uh, uh, leaders in the church over the years are comparing us to a mirror, that we reflect the image of God. Particularly, uh, the, the early church called it in two ways. The holiness of God, that is the otherness, that God is different, and the righteousness of God, that is the way in which is right and just and beautiful and good. All of that is reflected in the creation of man as we walk of the earth. Now, the original hearers would have clearly understood this metaphor in a way that we could not. Because the the, the, uh, Egyptian uh, pharaoh, whenever a new pharaoh came, he would commission all of his artists to begin to make statues after his likeness and spread them throughout the empire so because they didn't have radio or television or the internet, in order to see the rule, you had to see the Pharaoh. And the way that you saw the Pharaoh was through these representations of him that were scattered all over the empire. And so while they're out in the, in the desert and Moses is saying, you were created uh, to be image bearers of God. They would have thought 
immediately of Pharaoh. Because for 400 years, they have been seeing the image of Pharaoh. And God is, and Moses is saying, just as those statues represented Pharaoh, you are to represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords here in his creation. The way that the early church fathers called that, they called it the Imago Dei, the image of God that we bear, that gives us our dignity and our design. In that way, all of humanity is different. God didn't say to uh, man's best friend or the cats or whatever other pet that you think is cute that they are image bearers. Only us, only human beings reflect the holiness and the righteousness of God in this world. But we know in a couple of chapters that's all going to be ruined. In chapter 3, man is going to mar that image. He's literally going to break it. He's going to crack it. He's not going to make it unrecognizable because we still see that in us. There's a dignity to humanity even though it's cracked and broken. But it is cracked and broken. You know, the the way that I want to describe that to us this morning is I, I brought a mirror and I brought a plastic bag so we didn't see this mirror scatter all over the stage. We'll leave it in the bag. And then think of the hammer as our sin. And then first you have Adam, and then you have every one of ours. I got it. I'm sure there's a doctor in the house for that as we try to remove that from my hand. Strong. It's not the end of the illustration, I hope. All right. So that's one of them. Adam's sin, our sin, has marred that image and broken it. But secondly, in verse 28 of 1, he says, here's your purpose. Not just to bear my image. You're not a statue. He says, and God blessed them. Talking about Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living creature that moves and the earth. Theologians call that the the cultural mandate. And what they mean by that is the purpose of man, the meaning of humanity is to be fruitful, to fill the earth with other image bearers, to subdue its wilderness, its wildness, and to rule God's creation on God's behalf with God's values. It's his kingdom after all. This is God's original design for humanity. All of humanity. All. And the truth is, the closer we live to that design, the more whole we are. But the inverse is true, isn't it? The further away from that design we live, the more fragmented and broken we become. Now, I asked my wife for some old china. And that's what this is. This is actually her grandmother's. Mamma. And it's a, it's a plate. I don't think I've ever been served on this. It was more of a, uh, a showpiece in the house. And uh, so hopefully the bag will hold this time. But when we fail to live as we were designed, 
What our sin does is it breaks it. And so what, what we are is the image of God broken. And we're fragmented. Because we're far from our purpose. And that's why we're lost sometimes. And guys, you know, you ever heard that midlife crisis that some people have? This explains why. And instead of finding meaning here, we actually find what? No meaning. That's the vanity of vanities. All is vanity that he talked about in the book. So what does that have to do with the commandments? Because that's what the verse uh, said, right? It said, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. What are the commandments? There are 612, 613, depending on how you count one of them, uh, commandments in the Bible. The commandments are God's way to communicate to us our design. They tell us who God is and who we are and how we are to be. You know, often the Ten Commandments are a great summary of all 612 commandments about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And, and maybe that's just still too many to give us a picture. So what do we do? We, we reduce them uh, to two. That was the question, right, to Jesus. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Whether they're really asking him out of the ten, which one? Are you going to pick the first one, have no other gods before me? Are you going to pick uh, uh, keep the Sabbath? Are you going to ha- not murder in adultery? Wh- which one is it going to be? And he said, I'm going to give you the summary of them all. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And then he said the second, this is why sometimes it sounds like one commandment. And he says, and, and secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And in this command, all the commands are summarized. They give us a picture, but they also tell us how we, what? How we have failed, why, how we haven't kept up with our original design. And so the natural question we always ask, is there any hope for us? Is there any, is there any hope for me and I'm out of design? I, I'm more like this. Is there any hope? Well, of course. He gives the final answer in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Even the secret things that we have done that I have done, will eventually be brought, dragged right into the light and judged. Is that scary? It, it sure is. If, you, if there wasn't this, if there wasn't someone else who took the judgment for me, why can't God just forgive and let go? Isn't that what we tell people all the time? When people sin, let's just forgive and forget. Because the only hope for the world is that God is as just as he is merciful. If there is no judgment where all the injustices have taken place and all the wrongs are not brought into account, if nothing is ever going to be made right, then there is no hope for this world. Bad guys win, good guys lose. 
as if there was such categories. But if there's a judgment day where all the injustices and all the wrongs are brought into light and made what? Right. Then what hope is there for me? If everything's going to be dragged into the light and judged, where's the hope? It's in the cross. Because on the cross, for a single moment in time, all of God's wrath due sin was emptied on a single person for that single moment as our substitute. Everything that we have done, everything that nobody knows about but us and God is heaped onto Christ. And he literally says he drinks it to the dregs. This makes judgment day for Christians a good day. A good day because all of our sins have already been paid on judgment, before judgment day. God's justice will not allow him to punish the same sin twice. In this way, grace to us has allowed justice to be demanded by us when we should be crying out for mercy. We can cry out for justice because he can't require two payments for the same sin. All the sin has been paid in full. And therefore, we are free. We sang that song. But do we know what we're free from? First, we're free from no condemnation for our sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and of death. We're also free because of that to return to our original design. To reflect the image of God on earth as holy, righteous beings living in accord with what God says about us as sons and daughters, and to do that which he has claimed for us to do, which is to take this wilderness and tame it, what the word subdue means, and to rule over it according to his values, which are upside down. And the way that the writer says that this is the whole duty of man, but really this is the whole of man. This is what makes us whole, to do this duty. I want to be whole. Don't you want to be whole? I'm telling you how. So, last metaphor. I uh, um, know an artist in town that has taken these things and turned them into art. That's kind of like what God does, right? He takes the broken things in our lives, the fine stuff, the mirror, the reflection. And what does he do with that? He makes something beautiful. I hope you can see it. If not, you can see it afterwards. But all of these pieces are the earthenware, like the dish. Now, there's the broken mirror. This happens to be an anchor, so I really like that, being in, in Annapolis. But I really love the concept because that's really what God is doing with you, with me. He's taking all of the brokenness of our lives. He's reorganizing them so that they ha- we still have something beautiful to offer in our reflection of him and our new purpose. And so I pray as you think that in Christmas 
you begin to think about what life is really all about. All of the tyranny of the urgent, all of the brokenness uh, in the family, all of the things that really bother you. This is what God is doing. But how is he doing that? That brings us to the table. In order for God to take the broken things and make them whole, he had to enter this world to be broken himself. That's why I love Isaiah 53 that was read to you earlier. Stephen read us at the end of our confession this beautiful statement of the gospel. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's long before Jesus walked on the earth. So that people knew when he came and he was crucified, that's why he came. To make us whole again. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these people who, at this Christmas time, have come into this place and want your answer. To the tyranny of the urgent, the concern, the things that worry us, the things that we have done that are being dragged into the light, the broken things that now I all can see. What are you going to do with them? How are you going to make us whole again? How will we ever reflect the beauty, the holiness, the righteousness, the goodness of you? into this world that you have placed us, into the neighborhoods we live, the homes we live in, the communities that we're part of, including the church. Help us, Father, to see that this is why Jesus came this Christmas, to take all of the broken, shattered parts of our lives and make them whole. Help us run to Jesus, who is the final answer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.